Welcome to Zenergy, the interactive podcast providing resources for building a better life. I am Zen Ashe. I am your conduit, your catalyst, and your coach to that better life. A coach draws out hidden potential in the subject, a catalyst sparks change, and a conduit provides a connection. So today I am connecting you to Gwen C. Say hi to the people. Hello, hello. So she has a long bio. You can check out, you know, the event uh, information. Um, she's a poet. She's done slam from what I remember. Um, she has a book out. She works with diversity and inclusion training. And so we are um, going to talk about bias today, you know, because energy is all about trying to provide you fuel for your mind, body and soul and to challenge some of the limiting beliefs that we have. Um, and I think bias is a big one because if you are biased, you could lose out on a lot of opportunities because you're just not even open to the possibilities. And um, so I was actually doing a little research on bias. You know, we all know that bias is kind of a prejudice or a preference. Um, and it's normally a negative thing that people um, give into that limits their ability to see people as they are, situations as they are, because they already have this filter up where they're filtering everything through this lens. And so even though they see certain facts, the facts are not as important as mm -hmm. their bias that is telling them that the facts mean something that the facts may not mean. And that's why I think a lot of people say statistics, you can make them say anything you want because mm -hmm. you can put your bias on those statistics and spin them. And we all hear about the spin that's placed on events and, you know, changing the wording of something, changing the clips that you use. You could have a whole scene and you pick a certain clip because that clip fits your bias and fits the bias mm -hmm. of your audience. And so um, I think that as consumers of media, we have to be aware that there are groups with certain biases that are trying to get us to buy into their bias and support their bias. And um, and we have to hopefully try to be objective and look at things from both sides. Um, so when you think of bias, Gwen, what, what comes to your mind? So I think it's a lot for me. It always starts with hidden. Um, every time I think of bias, I think of things that we don't know exist within us. Those preferences. We know it's a preference. Like you said, we know it's, it's our filtering, but it seems for me, it's always the focus on the hidden ones that we think we don't have. We think we're doing all the right things. We think we're being the right type of person. We think we're inclusive when we're not. I am probably guilty of it as well. I'm sure there's times in my life where I've been guilty of it. And, you know, it's how do you know if it's hidden, right? You have to find it. Um, it's, and that's why I really liked what the way you did with the event. You put on there the advertising bias, um, the conclusion bias. These are things that we don't think about up until just a few years ago. I don't think I really thought about advertising bias probably until um, the Pepsi commercial with with Kendall Jenner and how they set this tone that she could just simply fix the problems in the world. Right. And that's not true. So I love how you listed them all out in the event and gave us definitions because I don't think even I know there's no I don't think I know for a fact I don't even think of what these different types of bias are and how these things are hidden in our everyday world. Um, the other one when you mentioned the trending popularity and just picking what's what's current so that people want to look like they're in the loop. You know we have to we have to make sure that we're paying attention as regular folk, but we also have to look at celebrities that are stepping into the game at certain points because we don't want to, like you said, support folks that are doing things because it's trending or popular at the time. So when I think of bias, again, it, it's always what's hidden within us. Um, you know, if I had to choose and dealing with people who are biased, they know it, they're blatant about it. And those folks who, don't know it, <laughs> They're, those folks are changeable because they don't know it and we can teach them. But at the same time, I I think in a way it's more easy to deal with folks who are very blatant in their their bias or you know their bigotry, I hate to use that word, but you know we know what we're dealing with in those cases. When it's hidden and folks aren't even aware of it, that they have that hidden element, then it's even more challenging for us to identify it and help them to change it. Yeah, I agree with you on that. So you did mention some things that I put in the um, into 
the description of this event. So I'm mm -hmm. going to read a little bit from that description. According to the dictionary, bias is prejudice in favor or against one thing, group or person in a manner considered to be unfair. So many of our problems in life and society are based on biases, many of them unconscious. Some biases are harmless, like chocolate or vanilla ice cream. Some Perfect. are more sinister. So here are some types just in the media. And you mentioned advertising bias. When what is shown is geared to attract or keep advertisers happy, effectively silencing some issues. So there are um, advertisers who don't want, let's say, for example, Black Lives Matter to be associated with their product. So there are some companies who will say, oh, we are not going to let Colin Kaepernick be a spokesperson because that advertiser would take their you know, advertising dollars away because they don't want to be associated with that. And so when you have a group of advertisers that are kind of, in a sense, ganging up to say, we don't support X, then mm -hmm. those issues can actually be less um, widely known because they're, in a sense, silencing through their advertising dollars. So that's mm -hmm. that, that was one. Um, concision bias is reporting only on the views that are simple and easily digestible rather than the more nuanced or complex ideas. So this is kind of like those sound bites. You, you get all of these sound bites that are so easy to, to di digest and people don't have to think about them. You know, they're slogans and that's what is always in the news because it's so simple, mm -hmm. but people don't want to hear, well, the issue's not that simple it's got all of these layers and all of these sides and all this complexity. They don't want to hear that mm -hmm. because that's going to make them think, you know, right. and you were talking about those people who are blatant and then those people who are more, you know, able to be flexible, you know, and sometimes when you're able to kind of get them into that nuanced discussion, you're able to get them to see, Oh, you have some biases, you know, mm -hmm. you have some, some ideas that you hadn't really challenged. And I remember, um, I can see her face, but I cannot think of her name right now. The lady who did the blue eyed, brown eyed experiment. Um, have you heard of that experiment? The, the, I the, feel like it's vaguely familiar to me, but I don't recall it. Must Was it a while back? It's yeah, it was like in the seventies. Oh, okay. Yeah. Basically she wanted to show people what prejudice was like. And so what she did, they didn't know what they were coming to. They thought they were just coming to hear a speaker. And so she basically outside of her venue, she had them divided into blue eyes and brown eyes. And the brown eyes all got like, you know, they had the blue eyes had something pinned on them or like a scarf or something they had to wear. The brown eyes were all treated, you know, they were seated first. They were brought snacks before the before the speech came in, you know, they were um, very solicitous. Can we do anything to help you? Are you comfortable? You know, and then the blue eyes were left. They weren't talked to. They were just shunned. And then they were eventually seated and everyone was very rude to them as if they were taking up space, as if they were mm -hmm. uh, less than inferior. Mm -hmm. And so throughout the whole presentation, you know, she's seeking out the participation of the of the brown eyed people. You know, what do you think about that? Why don't you come in here and tell us what your thoughts are? What is your experience? And whenever any of the blue eyed people wanted to um, speak, she would cut them off. She would talk, you know, talk down to them very condescendingly. And then eventually most of the people in the room understood what was happening. She was trying to get them to feel that prejudice isn't always burning across. It's not always uh, calling someone uh, a racist epithet. Mm -hmm. It is those subtle, what people call microaggressions. Right. It's seeing someone else treated much better than you for no other reason than just the color of their eyes, which mm -hmm. replaces the color of their skin, right? And so there were actually people in the blue-eyed group that refused to stay. They walked out and she said, you know, you signed up to go through you know, uh, a diversity training basically. And you expected it to be easy and pleasant. And you've only been here an hour. The people who are brown eyed, many of them have been dealing with this every day of their lives, their mm -hmm. whole lives. I'm just trying to let you experience a little bit of it. 
a little bit of the microaggressions, a little bit of the disrespect, a little bit of being assumed to be inferior. You know, mm-hmm. being assumed that you have an attitude, being assumed that you're angry, being assumed that this or that, all of those biases that people have because they have been sold, this idea that this race or this group or this gender, they all fit this pattern. And we're going to treat them like that, regardless of whether we even know if that's a true pattern or not. Right. So a lot of people who watched it were like, oh, my gosh, that's really what racism is. It's not, you know, it's not the hoods and the, you know, Mm -hmm. the burning of the crosses. It's all of the little things that people have to deal with every single day that tell them you don't belong here. You are less than you are not worthy don't even try to, you know, fit in or whatever, you right. know? So, so that was one of those experiments kind of showing the biases that are out there. And you mentioned the popularity bias, uh, reporting what's trendy to seem in the loop, avoiding lesser known uh, import or lesser known, but important stories. And then we have the sensationalism, you know, Reporting the scandalous or gory to entice the rubberneckers who might ignore more newsworthy but boring stories. Um, and then the bias against different demographics. So so what is what is your background and how did you kind of get into um, See the Worth, you know, mm-hmm. which I think is a great uh, title and also kind of dealing with diversity and inclusion. You know, how did you kind of come about that? And- All right, thank you. Mm-hmm. So background, um, Kentucky born, but Texas race, I like to tell everybody that, a Galveston girl. And um, I think had I stayed in Kentucky, I would be a totally different person. Not saying that people here are bad, not saying that it's not diverse in some parts of the state like Louisville where I live. Um, But I know for a fact I would have been raised differently. I would have been exposed to different people. I would have been exposed to more people that are just like me. I would have had a totally different life. So had my parents not taken me to Galveston at age four, I probably would be a totally different person, you know, I would, I can't even imagine. I just, the thoughts of not growing up the way that I did which are, are scary and frightening to me. Um, but see the worth, you know, that came after, um, you know, that's my version of my movements for supporting Black Lives Matter. It's a track, a song, a poem, whatever. And I created that after, um, I, I never, I was never the same after Tamir, let's say that, you know, when, when Tamir Rice was killed at 12, my son was 11. Uh, my oldest, I have three boys and having an 11 year old and seeing that not to take away from any of the other killings, because that's not what I'm saying. But I was never the same after Tamir. I cared every time. I think all poets do. We want to, you know, we want to change the world. We want to see um, equality, equity, all of those things. Right. And so it always matters. But Tamir was just kind of like this turning point for me. And then I think that's when I really my poetry started to shift more into the scene of um, being political pieces and trying to make folks feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. that do look like me and not not necessarily being concerned whether or not, you know, they're going to judge me more harshly than they already do. Um, or, you know, if they're going to feel uncomfortable and never want to come to another event that I'm hosting or or performing in because I made them uncomfortable. So that's when my poetry really started to shift into the, the political world. And then um, with Alton Sterling and Philando Castillo, with them happening, you know, a week apart, um, that was obviously a lot that year, just like you know, again, just like the last year has been with Brianna and George Floyd. So it's just a continued cycle. But when Alton and, and Philando were so close together and then just not even, I think, you know, two months later, here we are watching what's going down with Terrence Crutcher in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so that was where that was when I created See the Worth and decided that I'm going to take it and make it something else. See the Worth already existed since January 1 of 16, which is the same year when all of that happened. But See the Worth originally was supposed to be my reminder as Gwen C just to finally find self-love, to finally put self-care as a priority and all of those things that I still need today because I haven't accomplished it. <laughs> but what happened is later on in that year, see the word transitioned into something so much greater. It was like, okay, forget you, your self-love and all that's going to have to wait because this is more important. So see the worth became, um, you know, respecting every person you meet, every situation you encounter. Um, so that's the long answer on how see the worth came to be. You know, I work in human resources, so I'm not a diverse diversity and inclusion um, leader because I'm more of an HR director. But 
I am on the human relations board here in Louisville, Kentucky. So for our city, um, you know, we're looking at how we can remove bias and bigotry from the community, how we can make change, how we can get people those resources. You know, one of the things you talked about a while ago was, um, you know, and, and I, I think that I remember now that you broke down the blue eyes and brown eyes for me, probably from when I was in college in psychology or something, I'm sure that was where I'd heard of it. Um, but you had talked about that and how one hour, can you imagine how people felt in one hour, the stress, their stress level, they were experiencing something that they had never experienced before. And so that's kind of like the human relations commission. We're looking at ways to make sure that the folks that are in that brown eyes groups that are, um, not being given the resources that are constantly getting the message that they can't take up space or they don't matter or, you know, that they deserve less in some way. We're looking at how we can make Louisville better for every group, every population. So that's LGBTQ. It's all different ethnicities. Um, it's folks that are new citizens to our country who have gone, gone through citizenship process here in Louisville. It's all these things, right? And we want to make sure that we're getting people those resources because they do deserve to take up space. They do deserve fair housing. Um, they do deserve to not be a victim of a hate crime. They do need to know that if they are discriminated against in a workplace setting or even in a retail store as a customer, whatever it might be, that they can come to this board and we're going to investigate it. And if there is law that's being broken, we're going to we're going to um, try to resolve it. Right. I mean, that's the whole purpose. And so when you talk about the Louisville Metro Human Relations Board as a commissioner with that, it's it's fulfilling. Um, it's challenging because it's hard when you're doing something from a government entity, especially just using um, the last year as an example with Brianna Taylor being killed in Louisville. There's even a greater disconnect now because we haven't had any charges against the officers. So now there's even a greater disconnect between anything that is government, right? And the Louisville Metro Human Relations Board is sponsored by the government, even though it's not a paid job. I am a volunteer as a commissioner and all of the commission, commissioners on my board are volunteers, that logo still says Louisville Metro Human Relations. And so people see that as part of the mayor, part of the government, you know, and it is, essentially it is. I'm not saying that it's not, we wouldn't exist if it wasn't part of the government's or the mayor's choice to have us intact, right? You know, that's something that they choose to keep intact, but it's, we just wanna get resources to people. We wanna get them fair housing, fair education, um, we want to make sure that people know where they can go. And so that's what the commission is all about. So, you know, when I talk about removing bigotry and bias, a lot of the times it is going to be through my commission work. Um, I also talk about it just from being an HR director, even though I'm not a diversity and inclusion specialist, that is always part of my work because we, I'm not going to say any particular employer, because I think all of the employers that I've been with have had a major need to not just recruit talent from different ethnicities, but they don't know what to do with them once they get there. They don't know mm -hmm. how to include them. And I've seen that probably in my last four employers. So if you know me and you know where I work, then you know the companies I'm talking about. And it's unfortunate. And it's like we get in a situation in the employer sector where we're making progress, but it's so small. And so it, you know, watching from, I say from the outside, because I'm, looking from an HR perspective, not from the CEO level, not from the employee level, but just watching from the outside of it all. It's like equity is so hard to build. We can create programs and policies that make it appear that we're going for equality, but getting a real level of equity inside the organizations. I mean, all of the last four companies that I've been with since 2009, to me, that's been an ongoing struggle for there to be true equity. And so yeah. see the worth of all of that. <laughs> Sorry. So see the worth in, in the commission work. It's kind of all of that. It's me as a poet, how I grew up, how I was raised. You know, I've fought for people when I was, shouldn't be fighting in the streets of Galveston, right? You know, just doing the wrong things as a teenager. But it's because I've always taken up for other people. And like I said earlier, I know that there's hidden biases that I've had as well and probably didn't even know it. And so... When I'm in the workplace as an HR director, that's the thing I'm trying to do is always make other leaders feel uncomfortable. And I'm not afraid to do it. It's probably halted my career a few times because I'm maybe doing it too aggressively. But I, for example, I've been known for a fact to my second um, two employers ago, I called down an HR uh, director of marketing, our senior director of marketing, who is now vice president of the, of the marketing team within that organization for hiring people who are very similar to her. 
And she was from Houston. So it was heartbreaking for me. Again, being a Texas girl, I think everyone's going to think like me. And I know that sounds really naive, right? Because I was clearly in my bubble in a certain part of Texas. I wasn't everywhere. But um, she's from Houston. And I expected her to just really think about diversity and how she was going to build this brand new team. And by the time we were you know, up to seven people for a team that never existed in, in this organization, they never had marketing before. And as we built it, it got to a point where, okay, even when I'm, I'm interviewing folks, I'm giving you candidates who are from a diverse population, different backgrounds. Why is it that your team now looks so much like you? And she didn't take it well at all. But, you know, that's part of my role from a director level in HR within an organization. My goal is to make people feel uncomfortable and not just say we want equity, not just say we want inclusion, but to actually try to hold them accountable. Well, that's good that somebody's holding them accountable, you know, and I know when we see the movements that we've seen, like I'm thinking about, um, okay, so George Floyd happened, then there was like day after day after day after day of protests all around the world. And then you started seeing all of these companies begin to say, oh, you know, Black Lives Matter and we're gonna take on Jemima down, we're gonna do, you know, and sometimes people are like, hmm, we were not really worried about Aunt Jemima. Okay, thank you for Aunt Jemima, but uh, we need a little more of the, as you're saying, equity and equality and hiring and housing in, you know, let's stop trying to take away our vote. You know, maybe let's start there. Let's deal with the school to prison pipeline. Let's start with those things that are much more, not window dressing in a sense, they're not, um, they're not cosmetic. You know, I think right. some people felt like many of the things that were happening from companies were cosmetic. They were, um, let's change the name of something, let's change mm -hmm. the the symbolism of something. Um, but mm -hmm. nothing else is changing. Just just the box. Right. The box is changing. You yep. know, um, and so some people, it's like you had these two groups. The one group saying. You're getting all these changes. What are you complaining about? Everything's changing. You know, we can't even, you know, Dr. Seuss is even changing. You know, everything is changing. Um, right. And we're like, we, those were not the changes we were asking for. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, Dr. Seuss really never affected our lives all that much, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was that family deciding to pull those books, not necessarily anyone else. So, it, it was a very interesting, it, you know, it's been very interesting living these past, you know, few years, especially the past year to see all of the changes that have happened. Um, you know, I tell, I'm a teacher, so I tell my students, I said, pay attention because mm -hmm. you're living through history. People are going to be talking about this. You're, they're going to ask you what it was like to live through 2020, to live through 2021. Right. What was it like mm -hmm. when you had COVID and the second civil rights movement, and you had, you know, all of these things happening, you know, the, the insurrection at the Capitol, what was that like? So I was like, please pay attention. Right. And, and pay attention to what's going on around you, pay attention to what you see, what you hear. This is history making. Um, and as a poet, it, it is, um, I have written so much poetry about kind of the history of this moment and just, all of the things that it brought up for me coming from a background of people who were very politically active, very um, activist oriented um, and, and just seeing where we are now versus where we were in my parents' day, my grandparents' day and seeing how racism shows up now, you know, um, because I mean, my grandparents, they dealt with the Klan, they dealt with the crosses being burned. They dealt with, you know, being pulled off of the Freedom Rider buses. They dealt with all of that. You know, my parents too, you know, um, I've never had to deal with that. I've had a different experience, mm -hmm. but it's still part of the same tree. Right. You it's know, in the so doctor's office now, or it's in the classroom, or it's at work. Yeah. And so it's, it's a beautiful thing. You know, I love allies. I love people that are coming in and they're doing what they can, where they can, you know, how they can. Um, 
and it's it's organic and it's it's heartfelt. You know, I think that's a beautiful thing uh, when people just pitch in wherever they are to try to make a difference. Because I really do feel that grassroots change is is lasting change in many cases when it comes from the ground and it's it's organic and it's spreading out and people are being changed in communities. You know, mm-hmm. community by community is changing. I think that that's where you can see a lot of transformation and it's it's very inspiring. Mm-hmm. You know, so so movements like See the Worth, I think, are are really great and really powerful. And when you have a lot of little lights around the country, around the world, you know, we end up with a much more uh, inspiring and um, equitable, you know, healthy, whole world. So I think it's a it's a great thing. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. That it's you know it's like you said the grassroots change and you know when you talk about like the protests and stuff, people like you said 2020 is like living through history. Yes, we we survived. We're here now, right? And there are still people protesting in Louisville every day. Is the crowd the same size that it was um, in? June, July, August, September, October, November. No, it's not. It's still, but there is still a core group of people who have not quit, you know, and I was out there. I even took my sons, my husband, we all went out there several times, but there come a, there came a time when we stopped and that, you know, it was, we stopped because we were in tear gas one time. We stopped because, okay, we're not gonna, that was just me and my husband and one of my sons, thank goodness. I almost like the mom that's putting her, her children in danger for protest. But um, my youngest, he's 12 and, you know, he's, if anybody in this family is going to change the world, it might be him. You know, he's, he doesn't want to stop. He just wants to keep going. And, um, but what I was going to say is, you know, we're, pe- people need to recognize that in a global pandemic, folks were still willing to be out there. And there are still folks that are out there that were part of those original groups. And they're still fighting here in Louisville for justice for Brianna. They're not giving up. Um, I can't say that I'm one of them. I haven't been out there in in months. I haven't been out probably since October. You know, it came a time where I went back after we found out they weren't going to deliver any charges. The attorney general got that wrong. So that was a time for us to go out and speak louder and bring us all out again. But not just in Louisville, but everywhere. Right? Like, like you said, around the world, you know, I have poets that I've performed with that live in London and they're like, London was going crazy because of George Floyd. I mean, this was not just here. And that's that should be a wake-up call. People need to understand that folks were risking their life to go out and speak for something that is wrong. They, you know, it's just not something, we will never probably go through another global pandemic, right? And so I believe that folks genuinely risk their life to go out and, and be outside and to be in the streets and to protest what happened to George Floyd. And if that's not a wake up call for people whose eyes are closed, I don't know what else is or will be other than the revolution. <laughs> I mean, I just don't know what else yeah. it could be. I mean, what else can it be? That, that is like, so to me, it's just mind boggling that people still, some people still don't get it. it. It is, it is mind boggling. And I remember, I can't remember who said it, but there was this famous quote, the revolution will not be televised. And then when all the George Floyd protests happened, people were like, well, yeah, it is, it's being televised. They didn't get the point of that statement. The point of the statement was the revolution is in the mind. It's Mm -hmm. in the hearts of people. The revolution was not televised because you saw the effects of the revolution. The effect was that people watched George Floyd, Mm -hmm. you know, being murdered in the street and their mind became revolutionary. Their heart became revolutionary. That wasn't televised. And then you saw the after effect of millions of people, the biggest protest ever that's happened in anywhere worldwide happened day after day after day after day after day Mm -hmm. after day. And, you know, um, I've been to more protests than I can count. Um, I just was at not a protest, but I was at a rally for uh, Joshua Johnson. We did an artist rally. We had um, Congressman Al Green there because he was a, a unarmed black man that was killed mm-hmm. in you know Houston, and we've been trying for a year to get an indictment for him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the officer that killed him. You know, so 
So we just did a, another <laughs> another uh, artist rally and, and getting the congressman to come and speak uh, on his behalf and basically to say, hey, we're still calling for justice. We haven't forgotten. We are still here. We are still here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a whole nother thing that I think a lot of things thrive in the darkness, bias being one of them. Mm-hmm. And when you shine that light and you say, look at what you're thinking, look at what you're saying, look at how you're portraying things, look right. at the injustice. And then people are pulled, kicking and screaming into the light sometimes, then it's hard for them to stand up under that scrutiny. And sometimes they have to change what they're doing. They, they may not have changed their mindset, but some do, you know, mm-hmm. but the, they have to change what they're portraying. And um, I do feel that we've seen a lot of changes in how things are being portrayed. Um, I remember years ago, I was listening to um, a speaker and she was talking about the casual killing law. And this was a law like in the late 1700s where it was during slavery, of course, where there were so many children being killed by um, the mistresses of the, of the plantation that you know there was a fear that these women were going to be prosecuted so they created this law that said if you were to kill a slave in the procedure or the process of disciplining them that was a justified killing and there would be no repercussions for you and i bring that up because even though we don't call it the casual killing law, the idea that almost every time that we have a a person who's killed by law enforcement, Mm -hmm. they start with, well, you know, he had a history of, hmm, and uh, he probably was resisting arrest and he shouldn't have been carrying loose cigarettes and he shouldn't have whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. But the point is the cops should not be judged during executioner you know, and they should be able to de-escalate. They should be able to, um, if we look at other places in the world, they can go decades without a police killing. Some of them have never had a police killing, but we have one almost every day in America. Um, White, black, Asian, Hispanic, the race is not the issue. It is the excessive use of force and the idea that there is um, qualified immunity, you know, and the reinvention of the casual killing act in terms of, you know, hey, if you are disciplining them, if you are thinking that they did something, the it should be justified. Yeah, mm-hmm. it should be justified. You know, so we have kind of rebranded that as um, kind of shoot first, ask questions later, or mm-hmm. as they must be guilty until they're proven innocent. Mm-hmm. You know, even though we say that it's innocent until proven guilty, the reality is many times it's the opposite in in the way the world operates. Well, at least the way America operates. But I think that there are so many communities that are saying this is not acceptable. We are not going to tolerate mm-hmm. it anymore. There needs to be many non-lethal, you know. Um, um, ways to deal with people. There needs to be much more training on um, community relations, de-escalation, negotiation, communication tactics, you know, getting other people involved. Like the cops don't need to go to everything. Let's get social workers. Let's get some other, you know, mental health professionals. Let's get some Mm -hmm. other people. If it's a mental health issue, don't send the cops. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. So, you know, these different things. So communities are saying we're going to revamp. We're going to take the bias off of, oh, is this is the way we've always done it and say, we're going to start from scratch. Let's figure right. out a better way. Let's look yep. at this differently. If we were to start over again, take all the biases off. Let's look at our community. Let's look at the issues we have. How could we do this better? How can we re-engineer this system so it actually works for us so that we are actually protecting and serving? And I think that that's one of the greatest things that's come out of this is that many people are saying, let's throw out all of the precedents mm-hmm. and let's think, you right. know? And, and instead of going from 
here's what we've always done. Let's tweak it. No, let's throw out what we've always done. Let's start over. Right. You know, there was, I think it was Camden that actually dismantled their whole police system and started over again from like hiring all the way training. Nobody, mm -hmm. everybody had to reapply for their job after they went through a whole restructuring of everything. You know, that's because it should be. The you know, that is, that, to me, that seems like the solution at this point. Um, you know, you're, you're on point with it because what we find like with the commission, you know, where we will have, you know, um, calls and where we're sort of making demands on our new chief and things like that. Um, but we don't see any changes because of the police union. Um, we will say that, you know, we have a liaison who comes to every single meeting that we have regarding the police and her goal is to improve communication between our board and the policing. And we find that the things that we've been asking for, we were asking for when I became a commissioner in October of 2017. And we're still asking for the same things today. So wow. unless you dismantle it, like you're saying, and rebuild it, rebuild it completely in a changed format, we're not going to see that change because we, we are still asking to this day. And I, like I said, I, became, I joined in 2017 in October. We're still asking for more community involvement, get to know your residents, get to know the people in places that you're patrolling, have those relationships. Um, you know, we're still asking for the same thing and clearly that's not working. Mm. So it's, and, and we're still asking for um, hidden bias training and um, force training and all of these different things to be looked at, but it's still supported by the policing and the way they're doing things today. So the way we've always done it is still a factor we're not seeing that type of change. So until, you know, if dismantling it is the option that's going to make an actual change, then that's the time has come to do that because there are, um, there's no more time to waste. And, you know, for the people that aren't on board, we don't, you don't want to waste your money, right? So the folks that only care about the money and not the people, well, hey, it's a win for you too, because then your tax dollars aren't going into the same programs over and over that are, um, just reinforcing what's already broken. Hmm. You know, um, I was on a podcast recently and the, uh, I guess the host, he asked me to come on and talk about critical race theory. Hmm. And he was talking about how it was being applied up north and it was trying to uh, make all the white students feel like, hey, you're all racist and you should be ashamed of your white ancestors and you should just walk around ashamed of your white skin and all that. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. You know, um, it's a shame that we have this pendulum and it wants to swing all the way to the other side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was saying to him, that's not, critical race theory has been around since 1978, I believe. And it was not created to make anyone feel inferior. Right. It was created to show the systematic oppression of, you know, minorities. It was created to show how the legal system had been used, you know, that mm -hmm. this country was founded. Let's go back to, huh? We believe we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed with their creator with these inalienable rights, like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, except that all men meant white, mm -hmm. educated, wealthy landowners. Right. That's it. Those yeah. four things. If you weren't white, educated, wealthy, and a landowner, you were not considered a citizen. You had no rights. Mm -hmm. So all of the laws that were created during that time were for those men with those qualities and it all protected them. Everyone else had no protection under the law. And so when we're talking about critical race theory, it's saying this is what our legal system is built on, protecting white, educated, wealthy landowners. Right. And so we have to look back because the legal system is built on precedent, right? They go back and they say, this is the precedent. This is the precedent. This is the precedent. Well, if the precedent is white, wealthy landowners, okay, who are educated and you're not one of those people, then the precedent is normally against you. 
it's right. not in your favor. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the fact that there was anything wrong with being that. It was the fact mm -hmm. that it was completely biased. It shut true. out everyone who wasn't in that group. Mm -hmm. And that's what critical race theory was supposed to say. Let's look back. Let's hold this law up and say, is it actually built on the idea of protecting white, wealthy, educated landowners? If it is, we need to rethink this law. We need to change it so that it protects all citizens and it doesn't discriminate against anybody. Right. You know? And that's the whole basis of critical race theory. It wasn't about, oh, you're so horrible because you're white. No, that's not what it was about. It was about the historical facts of the way this nation was founded and the laws that were put in place. You know, so uh, I was trying to show him that I was like, and people have misused it to make us say all kinds of things. It's not what it was intended to do, you know? So when we look at our system and we wonder why it's biased, that's why it's biased. That, okay. That's the foundation of it, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and you and I would have been shut out of that white, wealthy land. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You nailed it. You nailed it. That is you and I would have been in the exact same boat, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of having no rights and right. no say, you know. Yep. And it doesn't matter that your skin color is different than mine. We would have still mm -hmm. been in the exact mm -hmm. same position. Yep. You know, legally. So it's, it's very interesting that people don't, understand that or that they see something the way it is applied now and don't say, hey, let's stop applying this, misapplying this. Right. And actually use it for what it was supposed to do, you know, mm -hmm. which is cause us to look at our biases, cause us to take the law as not a perfect instrument. It's not a perfect instrument. Right. It is created by men and it's something that we need to reevaluate from time mm -hmm. to time. And we need to challenge and we need to create new laws that reflect our new understanding of what America should be, you know? Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I agree with you. It's interesting. Um, I just did this workshop for National Poetry Month and it was with Ed Mabry. And so I was a participant learning all kinds of amazing things from Ed, right? <laughs> and um, <laughs> one of the, one day we had to, just a couple of days ago, recently, like near the end, we had to write questions that were unanswerable. Well, I really struggle with writing stuff that's not political these days because I've been so heavily influenced into writing political for the last five or six years that I just, I really struggle when I try to write anything that's not political, but we were supposed to write a poem that was um, all unanswerable questions. So phenomenal chance to be really abstract and create really amazing stuff. And it just didn't work out for me that way because my first question was, why does the constitution fall or something? Why does the constitution fall when it's supposed to stand? And basically I was saying it tells everyone, right? It's failing, it's not working, but you know, it just, when you were talking about that, it just reminded me of how we just have so much work to do. We, we need so much change. That's true. But you know, I'm glad even having conversations like this, you know, whenever I feel like things aren't changing fast enough or I wish things had gone differently, I think about the conversations that people are having and uh, for you and I to be on this platform discussing this, you know, I, I don't see that this would have been happening 10 years ago, 20 years ago. You know, people weren't having these kind of conversations that I saw, you know, right. maybe in academic circles, maybe right. on, you know, college campuses, but just out in everyday life, you know, I don't remember mm -hmm. seeing these kind of things going on. So it, it's definitely, inspiring to me that people are thinking about these things, talking about these things and doing something about these things, protesting, mm -hmm. creating organizations, trying to get people galvanized, trying to get people organized, trying to, you know, challenge the status quo in whatever mm -hmm. little small way that they're doing it. And, and I believe that poetry is very powerful in terms of it slides in under your defenses, you know, kind of <laughs> like comedy, you're laughing and then you go, ooh, ah, ouch, you know? And then mm -hmm. you were like, okay, that, that went in, you know? And you have to think about what, what you just heard, you know? And poetry mm -hmm. does the same thing. You're kind of captivated by the rhythm and the rhyme and the imagery. And then you're like, oh, okay. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That's something I hadn't thought about before, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree with so, that. 
I know that you um, have a book and I think you also do slam, right, too? Or um, you I've kind of got into slam a little bit here in the last three or four years. And yeah, I, I don't consider myself a slammer. I really did it out of just necessity. Um, you know, I think bias works both ways. Um, <laughs> you know, like you said at the beginning of this, sometimes we miss out on opportunities because of our own bias, but bias works in lots of different ways, angles and directions. And so lack of inclusion for me in poetry in this particular market, once I stopped hosting my own shows and doing my own events, um, it didn't really leave me a lot of opportunity other than maybe some open mics here and there. And so I decided that I would start slamming because there's always a space in slamming um, to, to go and make your points. I would rather, I don't mind slamming, um, especially now that I've gotten used to it, but I would rather just continue to perform in places that is going to impact the most people. Um, because again, a lot of the poems that I'm sharing these days are to make people uncomfortable and to make them question you know, their beliefs and how they're um, operating on a daily basis. So that's how, kind of how I got into slam, just more or less by default. I don't think that I ever really planned to do it. I just did. I gotcha. You yeah. know, as a, as a page poet for most of my life, like I've only done a spoken word for four years. There's two different worlds, at least in Houston. You know, it's like you have the page poets that are, everything's on the page and they recite sometimes and some of their poetry is very esoteric and it's like you almost need to read it to understand it because you're like well, i just heard you recite that but uh i'm a poet but i didn't you know can i see it you know can i read it again you know um so some of it is some of it is very relatable and some of it is is not mm -hmm. and and then you have spoken word which um can be all kinds of things erotic and and political and you know everything it can be everything under the sun you know you have slam you know and these are kind of different little worlds um mm -hmm. and so going from one into another into another it's like being immersed in a different kind of culture um, mm -hmm. and even you're talking about biases, you know, like for the longest time I was a page poet, I'm like, I was intimidated by spoken word artists for a while. I was like, I don't know if I could do that. And then mm -hmm. my mom was like, what do you mean? It's your words. You think you can't memorize your own words and perform your own? I was like, well, I guess you're mm -hmm. right. I guess I can. And then slam again is, is intimidating in itself. You got the timers, you got the judges, you got, you know, mm -hmm. the huge audiences, mm -hmm. prizes, you know, people are super serious about it. I mean, super serious. You know, so it's like, ah, oh, okay, this is a whole different aspect of it. You know, so, um, and, and then people have their own biases about what it means if you are this or that or the other, you know, mm -hmm. you must be this or you must be that or the other, you know, so it's, it's, it's very interesting, you know, but I look at it all as it's art, it's beautiful, mm -hmm. it's life, it's breath, you know, it's, it's wisdom and creativity it's all these things you know so right. I, I like floating into one space and floating into the <laughs> and when that one gets a little too hot float back out you know? i love that yeah no that's perfect and that's what you have to do um just because you're in a certain space at a certain time doesn't mean that's where you have to stay and just keep floating back and forth and go where it feels right at the time i love that you've been through all of the different worlds yeah, I, yeah, I have been. So, what is your book? I think you had published oh. a book. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So, um, poetry. I actually have six books. Um, you know, my first one was in 2015. I'm not going to sit here and break down what they all are and what they're about. The first one was just a compilation of, I think, like 64 poems. You know, all different topics: love, relationships. My first dabble into political pieces after Freddie Gray and um, what happened with his spine and just. You know, that was just kind of the beginning when I was starting to transition really to get away from love and relationship pieces and self-care pieces and really starting to go political. Um, but then I published um, a total of six poetry books, My Baby, My Heart and Soul. Oh, my gosh, definitely my heart and soul of all my books. I think I say that every time, but this one's never going to change. The title is the, the Revolution Will Not Be Social Media Eyes. Um, and I think I published that in 2019. So the timing could not be. You know, it to me, you know, and it's, it's, it's supposed to be obviously a sarcastic title because, 
even though, like you said, it starts in the brain, it starts in the heart, that's where revolution occurs, people are going to see it. And with the world being so um, driven by social media and all the different platforms, you know, that was the title of my book. Um, I love that book. The last words in that book are Tamir Rice. So just the way that I formatted it to make sure that, you know, he was the one because I felt like that's, he's kind of the driving factor behind that entire book. And then um, my most recent book is a totally different perspective. It's called Hugh Collar. I actually have it here with me today because this is um, 50 leadership, leadership essentials for humility, unity, and equity. So that's where the hue comes from. And I'll just put my secret out. I named it Hugh Collar just because um, of Huey P. Newton. So <laughs> that's why I wanted to have the hue in there. And that's where it came from. But this is more driven toward, you know, the workplace or commission or how you should interact with others. So it has basically 50 essentials, but they're broken down into some different categories here. Um, and if you don't mind, can I read just the last couple of paragraphs of this book? Sure. Because we talked about earlier, um, and this came out in 2020. So um, we talked about just how like living through history. And it just reminded me when you were talking about living through history, it reminded me of the end of this book. So it's talking about 2020. And if there's ever a time, you know, if you can't remember a challenge, then just think back to 2020 and you'll definitely remember a lot of challenge, right? Two major yeah. ones. So it says, together we learned more about ourselves, together we overcame, parents, families, entire communities, and all the systems within them had to change almost instantly. While working as one, we reconnected with each other. While being apart, we found gratitude and unity. We fought, we embarked, we embraced. We traveled back in time and hoped for a future. We took on two necessary journeys that required different directions. One that required sacrifice in our homes, one that required sacrifice outside of them, both equally important and urgent. We masked to fight madness and it wasn't a masquerade. We caravaned the year, gave us no need to parade. So just, you know, that's just like my reflection. Really it's just the last two about masking and caravanning because when I would take my boys down, I wouldn't let them protest on foot. So we would always be in the, the car part of that, you know, I mean, I let them out a couple of times because they wanted that experience. But as a mom, you know, I couldn't necessarily say, oh, yeah, I'm totally fine having my 12 year old out there. My 13 year old, they were 11 and 10, 11 and 9, 11 and 12 at the time. Um, but, you know, long story short, that I think the last two statements in this book really just sum up the entire 2020, you know, for for so many of us. But the book itself is about um how to lead, how to be a partner, how to be a collaborator in the workplace or in projects that you and in, in, you know you're involved in. Because I think what happens is people um, they get so focused on achieving their goals and dreams that they don't realize, and that doesn't mean that everybody does it, not what by any means, but people don't realize when they're doing the wrong thing. So this book is really geared about keeping that humility in mind. The unity factor should always be there. If you're gonna go far and be successful, unity is necessary. You can achieve things by yourself, but what good is that when you can achieve things as a partner or collaborator to someone else? I mean, to me, that's where it's the best outcome for everybody involved. And then obviously everything that you should do should be geared toward creating equity, whether it's in a workplace um, or in your personal life. If you're not willing to create equity in the spaces that you take up, then you don't deserve space. <laughs> so, that's, wow, it. that's, that's it. Okay. Okay. You got to run equity or you don't deserve to have any space. You can just, like, you just get this little spot. That's all you get. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I wanted you to tell the people where they can find you. Where can they find your books? All right. So um, all of the books are self-published. So, of course, I used Amazon, but anyone can reach out to me. Um, it's Gwen C C E E, and that's on pretty much every social media or Gwen C Poetry um, Gmail. Gwen C Poetry and Poetry is T R E E. But you can always find me anywhere for Gwen C if you are interested. You know, have orders. Um, I do all kinds of custom gift sets for folks if they are interested in books. You know, they get free gifts. You know, I really try to keep it where it's custom because I know that everyone has a different budget and a different idea of what they might be interested in. Um, I also do paintings. That's something that I've taken on in the last few years. So a lot of times if someone wants to order a book, they might get a free painting or vice versa. Um, CDs. I do have two, two CDs out. Um, the first one was released in 2014 and actually has um, 
some really dope tracks on it from some other artists that I was able to collaborate with. One of them is Lance Newman, who's amazing, Mr. Spread Love. He let me include one of his tracks. And then also uh, Verne, which is a hip hop song and it's amazing. So the first CD is more um, poetry about love, relationships, some political. It's kind of a, goes along with the first book. You know, it's kind of a blend of everything. Um, and the most recent CD is actually See the Worth. So See the Worth is music and poetry. So it has like every other song is an actual studio produced track. So if you like music and poetry, you'll kind of get a good blend of that. Um, if you just like music, you'll still like it. Um, and I usually try to do like a free CD or whatever with someone is interested in books. But really it's about getting See the Worth out there. I will give the CD away um, because I want people to hear See the Worth. I want people to listen to see the word. I want them to play it to other folks that maybe just, you know, don't understand still with all that they're seeing, they still need another source to, to, to shove that down their throat. Well, let me be that person because that's what see the worth is. You know, it's a free track. Um, if you can go out and download it some places, I know that I had it set up to be free. So that's it. Gwen C everywhere. Well, thank you guys for joining us. I'm going to talk a little bit about some uh, things that I have, but please like, share, you know, this video, send it to all your friends, you know, so that they can get her work. They can hear us talking about bias, you know, try to challenge your own biases. I actually created something that um, this is my personal development package, Zenergize Your Life, which is a workbook of 20 pages. And every page is about breaking through your biases. It's about really thinking about who you are, what you value, your priorities. Um, so every page is different. That's awesome. Congratulations on that. Thank you. So um, this is actually what a page looks like inside that's blank. So each page is a different topic. This first one is abundance. So you actually go through, you answer the journal prompts in the journal. And then you put a song, a movie, a book, an affirmation, a goal. This is your vision board space. And you put someone who's already passed on that uh, you are inspired by. And then someone who, yeah. So basically, you put pictures in here. Someone who's contemporary that you're inspired by. And I'll show you what mine looks like because, you know, I've finished mine. So, so this is my first page. You can see. You know, I've got Langston Hughes. He was the first writer, poet that made a living from his writing. I've got Oprah Winfrey. And then you can watch YouTube videos on these people, take notes on them. What can you learn from them? You know, the book that you put down, read it, listen to it on audio, take notes on it. I mean, books expand our ideas. They give us new things to think about. And then, you know, you just keep going through and you just keep finding out about people that can inspire your life. You keep writing your goals down. You keep, you know, answering different journal questions so you can kind of really get focused on where you want to go, where you are, what you're doing. You know, so you just have page after page to really explore. And I do have videos where I've done workshops with this where you can get those. Um, you also have stickers in the package, you know, where you put your goals down. You can actually put the stickers when you finish your goals. You got a little bookmark in there. You got a motivational band over here, this little motivational band right here you know so you have all kinds of little things that keep you motivated and of course you have the podcast energy because every one of those topics actually is covered on the podcast um i also have we got mother's day coming up so these are magnetic bookmarks they each have you know, positive sayings so they slide on the page so they're not going to fly out you know so this is actually six dollars for six different motivational sayings and I actually have ones that have affirmations on them. Like this one says, I am safe. You know, so I have control of many things mm -hmm. in my life. I am peaceful. You know, I have these things called smiley cards. They have like positive sayings on them. Like this one says, today is your day. So there's like 10 cards in here that have different sayings. And this is another, you know, set of the motivational uh, bookmarks. I also have different bands, you know, I showed you those. So there's a bunch of different colors and I have keychains. Like this one says create, you know, so these are pretty sturdy. So like create, dream, inspire, hope, you know, so, and these are just a dollar, but they're going to last, you know, so dream, believe. So I have stuff for all different, you know, price ranges starting at a dollar going up to, you know, some of my shirts are 20, 25, you know, I have pillows, totes, all kind of leggings, 
you know, blankets, all kind of motivational sayings on there. So you can check out the merch at Laughs and Lyrics, L-A-U-G-H-Z-A-N-D-Lyrics.com and laughsinlyricsmerch.com. So L-A-U-G-H-Z-N, the letter N, lyricsmerch.com. And I'll put all of this in the description. So hopefully you can check her out. You can check me out. Mother's Day is coming up. You know, we all could use some motivation, grab you some little motivational things, you know, a couple of dollars. You know, you could spend more than that, but you can get you some things that you could look at every time you look at it. It reminds you to feel good, think positively, and try to make the best of your life, you know? And so thank you for joining us and may you walk in Zenergy. My name is Zenai Shea and I have a weekly podcast called Zenergy which is fuel for the mind, body, and soul. And this is the Zenergize Your Life Goal Setting Package, Volume 1. It comes with the workbook, a journal, stickers, a bookmark, tabs, and a QR code where you can find my podcast. And inside this workbook, you're going to have 16 different principles. The first one I'm going to show you mine is abundance. You have a place to put pictures that inspire you of role models, also pictures of goals that you want to create, goals, journal prompts, meditations, affirmations, all kinds of things to help you focus on this principle to better your life. And like I said, there's 16 principles. So this is a $15 package that comes with all of these things I've shown you, $21 with shipping and handling, and you can get it at laughsandlyrics.com. So Zenergize Your Life with me. Thank you.